morning. Well, is it morning? Feels like morning. Morning's coming, ready or not. If you got your Bibles with you, open up. We're going to be in Isaiah 35. If you remember, we went through uh, three sections of Isaiah dealing with the second coming, uh, the retribution, God's day of reckoning. And then one of the things that Isaiah does, every time he focuses in on the harsh parts, uh, if you will, of the day of the Lord, he then takes a step back and he looks at the blessing. He looks at uh, the beauty behind it. Because the reality is, on that day, right, it's one of the, it is one of the days the Bible talks most about. Okay, the day of the Lord. What's going to happen on the day of the Lord? What's it going to look like? That day of reckoning when God comes and, and sets all the things that are wrong right. When He puts down the rebellion against God uh, for the last time. And when He sets up His kingdom. But, but not only is it a day of of uh, gloom and darkness for those who are unbelievers, but it's a day of redemption for creation, for the universe, and for the believer. And so every time Isaiah talks about one, he then turns back around and talks about the other. So Isaiah 35 is dealing with that aspect, the, the revelation of God's glory. Look what it says, Isaiah 35 verse 1, the, the wilderness... And the dry ground shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. So you have the idea of the world rejoicing. And one of the ways that you might describe a part of the world that is uh, where the fall of man is evident is the wilderness. Now, the wilderness is not like, like you and I, we might think of wilderness as deep, dark woods. But the wilderness, scripturally, the wilderness is the desert. It's the place where there's nothing grows, just sand as far as you can see. Um, I know some people in Idaho think we live in the desert. I'll be happy to take you where I came from. That's where the real desert is. It's not the desert. There's no water in the desert where I came from, no grass. Only trees are Joshua trees. You ever seen a Joshua tree? It looks like it's mad at the world. And if you bump into one, you'll be mad at the world. So one of the, one of the ways, one of the... And I'm not saying there's not beauty in the desert, but the idea is one of the ways where we can kind of visualize what does the fall of man look like, you know, is the difference between, say, the Amazon rainforest and the desert. And where you have so much life and, and what looks like so little, right? So, so little green, so little water. And over and over and over again, God will use the phrase that when what redemption accomplishes in someone's life is what happens when you bring water to the desert. Because the desert will bloom. The, where I came from in Yucca Valley, we have a rainy season, just like Arizona or, well, just like anywhere, but, <clears throat> and a lot of, <coughs> excuse me a lot of times the rainy season brings a lot of floods which can cause problems but as soon as water hits the desert it blooms and you get the wildest wildflowers you have ever seen and there's nothing like looking over a patch of just sand and seeing it covered by flowers now they don't last so you got to you know after it rains get out and see them if you want to see them cuz pretty soon they're going to turn into brown, shriveled up, dried up stuff. 
But prior to that, there's this little beauty, and it's like a little picture of what it's going to look like on the day when God redeems all of creation. And so when we look here, we see this language being used. Hey, the wilderness is going to blossom. But the difference is the blossom doesn't just come, get burned up, and fade away. This is the wilderness blossoming, coming to life because of the, of the King of glory. The King of glory has come. And part of the idea is that there's this revelation of God's glory and the beauty of what that means. Now, just back up and think about, in the book of Exodus, Moses said, God, I want to see your glory. You guys remember? Lord, show me your glory. And God said, if I show you my glory, you're going to die. So what I'll do is I'll hide you in the cleft of the rock and I'll pass by. And the afterglow, the, the dust that comes up after God goes by, I'll let you see that. And so Moses sees that. That little bit of the idea of a, a little less glory than if you were looking at you know, absolute true God, that that little bit of afterglow was enough to make Moses' face shine for 40 days. The people told him to put on a sheet. Cover your face, man. It drives us crazy how much it glows. And that's the afterglow of God. So when we talk about the revelation of God's glory, it's not, it's, it, we don't want to think about it like something that we can't fathom, but recognize that scripturally, that's the thing that is so amazing about God that we're not able to handle it. It's so incredible. But on the day when God redeems the world, that same time when we have the day of the Lord and the, that judgment and all that stuff coming, you know, it says that there's sorrow in the evening, but what happens? Joy comes in the morning. In the morning you have the glory of God. The glory of God being revealed and the universe really responding. It says in Romans chapter 8 that the, the world creation is groaning for the day when, when God is king again. When the curse is lifted. And that is a part <coughs> of... What the day of the Lord is all about. It says the glory of Lebanon will be given to it. The majesty of Carmel and Sharon. Now Carmel, Sharon, Lebanon, those are forests. Okay? Deep, thick forests. Just like you would imagine. So, so you have these deep, thick forests. And then the Lord is saying when, when the glory of God comes, when the curse is lifted, the desert, the place on earth that looks like it doesn't have any life, is going to be like Carmel and Sharon. Sharon is a, a, a place uh, more, more like a prairie full of flowers. And then you have Carmel, which is a mountain full of, of trees, forests. And so this is, the, he says, that glory is going to be given to the wilderness. So the picture, the curse lifted, the harsh things, no more goat heads. Everybody okay with that? Yeah? Praise the Lord, huh? Yeah. What's them other ones? Them round ones that are spiky? Yeah, uh, those all need to go too. Now would be good. For some reason, I always get a patch of them in my grass. Drive me crazy. I almost want the goat heads back. Maybe not quite that far. But anyhow, God's glory is going to be sung. It says, they will see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. So the idea that the creation, the world is going to sing for the glory of God. Isaiah 14, 7 and 8 says, The whole earth is at rest and quiet. They break forth into singing. 
The cypresses rejoice at you. The cedars of Lebanon, saying, Since you were laid low, no woodcutter comes up against us. The idea is that <clears throat> the forest, creation singing for the glory of God. Isaiah 44, verse 23. It says, Sing, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout, O depths of the earth. Break forth into singing, O mountains, the forest, every tree, for the Lord has redeemed Jacob and will be glorified in Israel. So the day of redemption, all of creation breaks forth in singing. Isaiah 49.13 Sing for joy, O heavens, and exult, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing, for the Lord has comforted His people and will have compassion on His afflicted. So, when the curse is lifted, when those things, the rejoicing of creation, and again, Paul kind of... uh, Uh, echoes this sentiment in Romans chapter 8. In Isaiah 55, it says, For you will go out with joy, be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills will break forth into singing, and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. So, all of creation rejoicing at the glory of God. Zephaniah 3.17 The Lord your God is in your midst, the mighty one who will save. Uh, He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by His love. He will exult over you with loud singing. So God is rejoicing in His work of redemption and the response of creation is to rejoice along with Him. The the rebirth, if you will, of, of the intended. Right? We all say, I wonder what it was like in the Garden of Eden. On that day, you won't have to wonder. You just look. It'll be... All around us. <clears throat> Verse 3, he goes on and he, he talks about God's victory and what, what it is that God's going to do. It says in verse 3, Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance and with, and with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. So he, he's saying to people, go to the people. Now here's the encouragement. We're looking forward and we're seeing one day there will be a lifting of the curse and a healing of creation. And then we look back. So now our job is to strengthen those who feel weak. To help people with feeble knees to stand. The idea is that, that we don't have the strength of our own. We don't have the firmness to stand on our own. We receive those things from God. So our job as a body together is to encourage one another. So if we see a brother uh, worn out, tired, can't finish. I, <clears throat> a great picture of this is almost every time you watch a marathon. Anybody ever watch a marathon race? I, I, don't, I don't watch the whole thing, but the end is kind of cool. And if you're looking at the end of the race, there's always somebody who can't make it. They're like at that last mile, right? And they just can't go on anymore. Their legs are super wobbly. They can barely stand up. And how encouraging it is when a couple of people come alongside and grab their arms and help them, right? We're going to finish. Let's finish. And so this is what the Scripture is talking about. In lieu of, in light of the fact that one day God is going to to cure the curse. He's going to lift that. He's going to, he's going to bless all of creation. He's going to redeem all uh, of mankind who comes to Him in faith, then we need to strengthen one another so we can keep our eyes on the prize, right? That's what Paul would call us. 
Put your eyes on the prize and keep walking. Keep moving forward. Move with endurance. Walk with endurance the race that God has laid out before you. He says, say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong. Don't be afraid. Uh, in Joshua 1.9, you know, we've, maybe we've all heard that scripture. He says, uh, be strong and have good courage. Be strong and have good courage. The Hebrew word there is rock kasak. And it became a part of the battle cry for the, the Israeli army. So when the Israeli army was going into battle, they would repeat that phrase, be strong and courageous. Rock kasak. Be strong and courageous. Sometimes they'd throw in a matz. Be a rock kasak matz. And they would say, they would shout this as an encouragement to the people beside them and as a reminder. Be strong. God's with us. Be strong. It's okay. It's going to be okay. So he's saying, say to the anxious, the one who's losing their way, the one who's starting to falter right at the race, say to them, uh, be strong. Don't be afraid. Why? Because God is coming. <coughs> the Lord is coming. He is coming. And we saw earlier in the earlier chapters, He comes with vengeance. He comes with recompense. There is a day of reckoning. There will be a time of reckoning that God will bring. And ultimately, that last phrase, and He will come save you. Now, that phrase, He will come save you, is not the phrase that means He's going to come deliver you out of everything in life that's hard. Because to the church at Smyrna, who were being persecuted and dying for their faith, God said to them, Be faithful to death, and I will give you the crown of life. So let me express that, and maybe in a way that we can kind of lay our teeth into. Um, he says to Smyrna, Be faithful unto death. I'm not going to save you from the persecution, but I will give you the crown of life, meaning death's not going to separate you from me. Death is the doorway to God. It's the gateway. We enter into His presence. And when we enter into God's presence, that's the true understanding of salvation. When you recognize, oh, I was so afraid. There was a moment of great fear, right? Trepidation. What's going to happen? What's this going to be like? What am I going to experience? And then in a moment, that's over. And there you are standing before the glory of God that causes all of creation to shout for joy. So that the Lord laying out for His people, I'm going to save you. There, there's Nobody gets away with anything. Nobody gets away with anything. Wrong is going to be handled. Jesus said from the throne, Revelation chapter 21, See, I make all things new. <coughs> there will be that moment of reckoning before the Lord. But He will, not only will He settle accounts with the unbeliever, but He will save His people. He'll deliver us. And nobody on that day is going to say, man, that was, that was way worse than I thought. In fact, Paul says in Romans chapter 8 that he does not consider this present suffering worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed, with the glory that will, will happen that moment when we close our eyes here and we open our eyes at, at the glory of God that no man can see and live. In that moment, the glory of God that causes the universe to shout forth in praise. That's going to be a pretty incredible sight. I've seen a lot of incredible things in my life. been blessed to go to a lot of amazing places. But I still know I have something yet to see that will be greater than it all. Everything I've ever seen 
the day when I look into Jesus' face. What a, what a day of rejoicing that will be. In verse 5, we have the removal of all human suffering. Look what it says. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped, the lame will leap like a deer, the tongue of the mute will sing, for waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. So what's he saying? He's saying on that day, we've, we've now made the transition from earth, from our place to the presence of God, whether that through death or through His return. Okay, one, one way or the other. We're all either going to die or Jesus is going to come back. Right? Are we tracking? And if Jesus comes back, then we'll experience the same thing. What will we experience? The end of blindness, the end of deafness, the end of lame, the end of the mute which is all symbol for the end of human suffering. The end of human suffering. We got a taste of it. When did we get a taste of it? When Jesus walked on the earth. What happened to the blind? He could see. What happened to the deaf? He could hear. What happened to the lame? He could walk. What happened to the mute? He could speak. All the way through. It's just a it's just a taste. A foretaste of the glory that's coming. Of the concept that we talk about all the time that we can't really even fathom, right? The, the part where God says, I'll wipe away every tear. Do you really understand what that's like? Because in the language, it doesn't mean the tear that you're crying right then or the tears that you're going to cry in the future. It means He's going to wipe away every tear. Past, present, future. All sorrow, all suffering, all all diminished because why? You're in the glory of God. And in the glory of God, there isn't any of that stuff. All that stuff gets washed away. We all carry baggage with us, right? Maybe there's a couple fortunate ones of us who don't have a lot of baggage from the hurts, habits, or hang-ups of our life. But the rest of us, we got baggage. And one day when we stand before God... There's no blind, no deaf, no lame, no mute. There's streams in the desert. Remember I told you desert's a picture of the curse. But there's going to be water in the desert. The place that has no life is going to have life. The place without life, because God is (coughs) the God of life. That's why it's an important concept when we look at the things that God talks about that He's in opposition to. Right? There's... Maybe a lot of reasons why why God is uh, um, against the culture of death. But certainly one of those reasons is that He is absolute life. He's absolute life. Now, maybe some people can't, can't wrap their mind around it, but absolute life values life. So if you did something opposed to that, God's requirement was your life. If you took life... God said, then your life will be taken. It's forfeit. If you damage life, that all of that it comes back to the concept of God being life. Life incarnate, absolute life, which is flowing in the scripture in the redemption. Now the, the prophets talked about this often. <clears throat> Isaiah 29, verse 18. In that day the deaf will hear the words of the book. And out of their gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind will see. The meek will obtain fresh joy in the Lord. And the poor among mankind will exult in the Holy One of Israel. 
So that's your eye. That's the picture of the foretaste. When Messiah comes, the deaf are going to hear the words of the book. Most people figured if you were deaf, you it was a problem. You did something wrong in a previous uh, existence, right? You, or your parents sinned, or your grandparents, and now you're you're deaf. They didn't care about them, but Jesus sought them out. Jesus sought them out, and he made them to be able to hear the words of the book. He lifted the darkness from the eyes of the blind. He said that the meek would inherit the earth, right? That there was a purpose that God had for the poor. At the time, if you were poor, that was considered to be God's mad at you. If you're poor, if God loved you, you'd be rich. There's still people that preach that message today. The problem is Jesus hung out with the poor. He didn't hang out with the rich. He was always with the poor. In fact, the Pharisees were always griping about it. Why is he always with the poor, these dirty people? we got to come hang out with the dirty people to see Jesus. I don't want to do that. But that was who he was. Isaiah 32, he says, Then the eyes of those who see (coughs) will not be closed. The ears of those who hear will give attention. The heart of the hasty will understand and know. And the tongue of the stammerers will hasten to speak distinctly. A picture of all those things being wiped out. One of the things that I can recognize as I grow older, I know I'm not old, I feel old, but I know I'm not old. But as I grow older, I don't hear what I used to hear. If I'm looking at somebody's lips, I hear it pretty good. But if I can't see the lips, uh, and if there's noise in the background, you guys come to coffee on Monday morning, and if that coffee grinder kicks on, I'll look at you and nod, but I'll have no idea what you're saying. Your lips are moving, but I'm not sure. But I I figure we'll figure it out as as we work our way through. But that's something that happens as we get older, right? I have to wear glasses. I never had glasses in my life. I cannot read not one thing on one sign anywhere on earth. If you got words on your shirt, I have no idea what they say. I can't, I can't read. If I put on these readers, I can read. I, I bought regular glasses and I rolled an elk over on top of them. And then when I told Kathy about it, she told me I couldn't get new glasses. So I'm back to readers again. You guys can take that up with her when you see her. So, but all of those things happen, right? If we live long enough, what's going to happen? We're going to not hear so good. We're going to not see so good. We're not going to move so good, right? But here he's saying, hey, there's a day when that's not going to happen. Your ears don't wear out. Your eyes don't wear out. Your, your tongue won't wear out. You will have all the things as God intended. That, that place wherein, as he began, where, where we are glorifying along with the universe the beauty of God. Now we see a, a, a bit of a fulfillment in all these things in Christ, right? Because when Christ came, <coughs> we saw him do these things. It, he went throughout all Galilee in Matthew 4, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So it was hard to be sick and and be in Jesus' presence, right? Now, was the point so that we would uh, think that, well, if God's uh, for me and He loves me, then I won't be sick? No, what's the point? He's saying, yeah, in me, this is all going to be washed away. All these signs of the curse He's dealing with, they're gone. I can take away your brokenness and I can make you whole. Matthew 9.35 As Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in the synagogues, 
proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease. Matthew 14, 35, when the men of that place recognized him, they sent to all the region and brought him everyone who was sick and implored him that they might only touch the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. Jesus takes away our brokenness, our blindness, our deafness, our lameness, our dumbness, all taken away in him. And then we see the release, right? The spring, the spring flowing in the desert. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty grounds of water in the hunt of jackals or in the haunt of jackals where they lie down. The green shall become reeds and rushes. So again, the idea of the curse being lifted, of there being water where there needs to be water, that life would permeate the planet. Now, <clears throat> there's still a lot of life on the planet. I'm just talking about like a, a literary picture, right? If all of a sudden the, the desert becomes a forest, all of a sudden you think, wow, there's a lot of life here. There's, there's a lot of life in the desert anyway, but there's, there's going to be more. It's going to be as the Lord God intended it. And the point that he wants us to understand, this day is the opposite of the day of vengeance. The day of reckoning. The day of reckoning is a day of darkness, of blood, of fire, of judgment, right? The day of redemption is a day of life. All of them, each of them are a part of the day of the Lord. But if you remember, the Lord stood before His people in Deuteronomy, and He told them all of these things. And then He said to them, See, today I have set before you life and death. Blessing and cursing. Then what does God say? Choose life. You get to pick the path you're going to walk. You get to pick the journey. You get to pick what the day of the Lord is like. A day of reckoning, a day of judgment, or a day of redemption. We get to choose. That's why over and over again, God would say, the highway of the Lord is a high highway. You can't miss it. But people want to take the broad way, right? Man's looking for the easy way, and the easy way is not God's way. God's way is described as a narrow path, isn't it? Wide is the path of destruction. Many find that, but narrow is a way that leads to life. Narrow is a way that leads to life. It's the path that Jesus walked. It's why he turned around as the voice of wisdom in Proverbs and said, Follow me. Follow me, come. Come with me, walk with me. Follow, walk in my footsteps. Experience the life that, that God has, the intention that God has. In fact, He describes it. Look in verse 8. And a highway shall be there. It shall be called the way of holiness. And the unclean shall not pass over it. Now we're all unclean. So how do we get on that pathway? We get on that pathway by being redeemed. How is it that the desert has forest? Because what was dead did what? Became alive. We talked a little bit about it on Sunday, right? The point of the resurrection of Christ is that <coughs> we who are dead in our trespasses and sin can be made alive together with Him. That He makes me alive. He makes me righteous. He makes me holy. 
that I enter into that place through, through covenant with Him. That I give it to Him. It's, it's yours. Now, the hard part is to say it's yours and then stop calling the shots. Because we're pretty good shot callers, or we think we are. We're pretty sure we know how things are supposed to go. But here's the way, here's the path, as Jesus described it. It was a path of humility, wasn't it? He said, "The the, the Lord resists the proud, but does what? Gives grace to who? Gives grace to the humble. Jesus said, when you come to a table, don't sit in the best seat. Why? Because who are you to decide you should have the best seat? So what did the Lord say? When you come to the table, do what? Sit in the lowest place. And then, He will lift you up. Right? So we come to God in humility, not in pride. Not because we have some great gift to give God. We're, we're some great gift for Him. But rather we come humbly, Lord, <clears throat> like the tax collector, remember? Who beat his chest and said, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's how we come to God. We come to the Lord, beating our chest and say, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. I, I'm a wretch. I'm broke. Uh, I, got, I, I know who I am. And I know who you are. I'm dead, but you can make me alive. That's how we get on the highway. That's how we get on the path of wisdom. That's how we take up our cross daily and follow Him. Not by clamoring with selfish ambition for our own position. Right? In Philippians chapter 2, um, you get a chance to look at it. I, I'd say 5 through 8, but it might be 4 that talks about it. But one of the things he says in chapter 2 of Philippians is to do nothing out of selfish ambition. So how many things should we do out of selfish ambition? You're right. It's not a trick question. Nothing. It's not about self-promotion. What is the life when we're following Jesus? What is it about? If it's not self-promotion, who should we promote? That's right. So Jesus said, if I'm lifted up, what will I do? I'll draw all men unto myself. So what do we need to do? Lift up Jesus. Not lift up Jackie. Who cares about him? He's just a wretch like anybody else. And so is, I don't care what names they put before or after their name. I, I, I can guarantee when somebody don't know me, when I get a piece of mail that says, to the Holy Right Reverend Roberts. If you guys look, I, the sign's gone, huh? I forgot we took the sign. There used to be a fence up here before they built the clinic. <coughs> because um, Ron Jones made me a sign because I told him about this mail I got. And I think it said, Most Holy Right Reverend Roberts or something like that. So he made me plasma cut out a big metal parking sign so I could have a parking sign that said most holy right reverend but they spelled holy wrong so it said most holy so which was probably better <clears throat> anyway it made more sense and so I hung it out there and I remember when we were doing the soup kitchen we had a fellow that would come and this this guy liked to argue all the time and if you know anything about me I, I'm I'm not, I'm happy to argue so I was happy to sit at his table and during those days, a fellow was coming to church here named Larry Fredrickson. Maybe some of you guys remember him. He worked for Racers for Christ or, or was part of that ministry. And he had emphysema. So everywhere he went, he had to go with uh, oxygen tanks. So in order to get him the ability to make life easy, we put his name on a, on a plaque, you know, and stuck it to the side of the building 
that said parking for Larry. So Larry would always have a place up front to park so he could come in. And so I'd sit down with this guy at the soup kitchen and he says, oh, your parking place out there? And I said, no, I'll show you where mine is. You want to come see? So we took him out, took him out to the most holly, right, Reverend Roberts out there in, in the back 40. But the idea is, it's, look, it's not, it's not about me. It's not about you. It's not about our fame. It's not about who thinks we're great or who doesn't think we're great. It's about who thinks Jesus is great. It's about elevating him. That people know his name. If they never know the name Calvary Chapel Beale, great, who cares? Do they know the name of Jesus? Do they know who he is? That's, that's the point. That's how we get on the highway. That's how we follow wisdom. When wisdom calls. Because wisdom would say, I don't have any, so I need you. You guys get that? The person who already thinks he's wise, he doesn't hear the call of wisdom. He's already got it, right? What do I need that for? But the person who knows, I don't know what I'm doing. They're the one that says, hey, wisdom's calling. I'm following you. Hang on, I'm coming. <clears throat> I need you. Isn't that the same thing we say to Jesus? Who, when we look at his holiness, his righteousness, his beauty, his majesty, his glory. That, that, that's what brings us. That's what draws us. The realization of of the way of holiness. That's how we get on that road. So he's saying it's a highway. Hey, it's there. It's once you're on it, it's it's straight shot. There's no you don't have to worry about whoops, I missed a turn. I ended up in, you know, somewhere I shouldn't have been. Oh no, I'm in Burley. No, no, you're okay. Just keep going. Stay on the road. You'll get where you're trying to get to. There's a highway there. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Listen to this phrase, even if they are fools. Now the Bible would tell us in Proverbs, a fool has said in his heart, what? There is no God. But a a fool, you have to start as a fool to follow the way of wisdom, don't you? A fool says, I don't know what I'm doing, but I know I need wisdom. So when wisdom calls, the fool We'll answer. Now the Bible would call that person the, the, the wise. Why is he wise? Because he got off the path that led to destruction. <clears throat> and he got onto the path of life. So the idea, even if they're fools, they won't get lost. You can't get lost. This is what the Bible is declaring. You can't get lost on the way. If you're following Jesus, you can't get lost. But there's a big if clause there in the beginning. What was it? If you're following Jesus, what? You can't get lost. What if I'm not following Jesus? Well, you may be lost already. Follow Him. Go His way. See things through His eyes. Hear things through His ears. Even if they're fools, they will not go astray. Now listen, you don't have to worry about something coming along and eating you. Does anybody, when they think about how they want to die, want to be torn apart by a shark? That seems bad, right? Or a lion? That doesn't seem good either. A few years ago, and when we were still in California, there's a few, this, this might trip you out, but there's a few places in California that have mountain lions. And, but there's not a lot of things for mountain lions to eat. But there's these people who, uh, who ride these bikes on these trails. And for a while, there's some of them, them lions were like, dude, these guys are easy pickings. They wait in a tree, a dude ride by on a bike, they jump out the tree, chomp on his head, 
And you know like your cat, you know, he likes to eat the head off the mice and leave everything else. So they eat the head because I don't know why it seemed like a good idea to them. And somebody come along and find this torn up bicycle and a guy with no head. And the next day there's another one on a bike riding the same trail. So the mountain lion's like, this is a good deal. So I love the rules in Idaho. If you're dumb, they just let you die here. And in California, they try to save you if you're dumb. In Idaho, they're like, look, if you're dumb, you, you want to get on your bike and ride on the trail with the mountain lion? Okay. We don't have to worry about you breeding. Everybody else, maybe we do. So, but I, I, I always enjoyed that. You know, like we come to Idaho and we were down at uh, one of the first places we went down to Ritter's Island and, you know, the waterfall, I don't know what it's called, but the waterfall there, Ritter's Island, you can walk over to. We walk over to the to the waterfall, and uh, I've got my kids with me, and they're like, hey, can we climb up that? And I look around, and I go, if we were in California, there'd be a fence and guards and somebody ready to shoot you if you tried to go up it. You know, you're going to mar the rocks or something. And uh, But there's no fence there. So I said, yeah, we're in Idaho. If you want to be dumb, they'll let you kill yourself here. So they, they hiked all the way up that waterfall, far as they could go, played around in the water up there. I just had to wait and make sure whether my kids were going to make it or not. But they came back, so I still have them. But they, uh, that's, that's, the, that's the idea, right? The, the concept is laid out for us. Hey, <clears throat> if you want to be dumb, bad things will happen. But on the highway of God, there's no lions. You don't have to worry about something picking you off. On the highway of God, there's not something that's going to cause you to, to go astray. No lion shall be there, verse 9. Nor shall any ravenous beast come upon it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed will walk there. The redeemed. See, the, the picture is the same way that the universe is praising God for its redemption, so will mankind. Praising God for His redemption. Because I think, you know, one of the coolest things... To see in the wild is a lion. And what would it be like to look at that and not have to worry about being eaten by it? What would it be like to go out and see bears walking around and not have to worry about being between a sow and her cub? I know. Kathy says, I was watching a hunting video about bears, hunting bears, bow hunting, and uh, a bear got shot and he moaned and my wife started crying. I said, what are you doing crying for the bear? She's like, oh, it's, it's, he just reminds me of teddy bear. That teddy bear's got the biggest claws on it you've ever seen. Don't, don't ever cry for the bear. The bear, the bear's, the, he's, he's just fine. But the, when we look at it in the redemption, the Bible tells us that a, a child will play by the cobra's den. You don't have to be afraid. Why? Because that animosity between creation and mankind, that's over. That's part of the fall. What's it like? I always think, you know, when, when I think about heaven and glory, a lot of people, you know, we, we start to picture things that come out of the Middle Ages, you know, harps and clouds and, and singing. And, but the, the reality is God made us earthy. And He made the earth for us. So there's a new heaven and a new earth. The new heaven is for heavenly beings, the angels. The new earth is for earthly beings. Us, those who carry flesh. 
And the new Jerusalem stays between them both. And it's eternal. Life is eternal in both. It's not like life's only eternal in heaven and on earth people are, are dying and starving. And No, that's, not how, that's how it is now, but that's not how it's going to be. It's going to be amazing. I look at those scriptures where the wolf lies down with the lamb. Yes, it's not the lion. And the lion eats straw like the ox. And a child plays by the cobra's den. And he don't have to worry about being bit. And the picture is that a baby can be out there with all that wildness and not be afraid. Why? Because Leviathan is gone. Leviathan was the sea monster. The thing that everybody was afraid of. The monster under your bed. Evil. But on the day of reckoning, God destroys evil. It's gone. And on the day of redemption, we don't have to be afraid anymore. There's nothing for us to fear. But the beauty of creation is God intended it to be. <coughs> it says in verse 10, And the ransomed of the Lord shall return. Come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will be upon their heads. And they shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing will flee away. All those other things, they're gone. Yeah, there's no, there will be none in the past. There will be none in the present. There will be none in the future. It's gone. Everything is made new on that day when we stand before the Lord. Isaiah 11, if you remember when we went through that, it says, In that day the Lord will extend His hand a second time to recover the remnant that remains of His people. From Assyria and Egypt and Pathros, Cush, Elam, Shinar, Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea. What's he saying? From the four corners of the earth, he's going to draw his people. And he will raise a signal for the nations, and they will assemble the banished of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. God gathers them all up, his redeemed, that the redeemed of the world of the earth say so. In Jeremiah 16 He says, Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when it shall no longer be said, as the Lord lives who brought up the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt, but instead, as the Lord lives who brought up the people of Israel out of the north country and every country where He had driven them. The redemption of His people. Jeremiah 33, For behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will restore the fortunes of My people, Israel and Judah, And I will bring them back to the land that I gave their fathers, that they can take possession of it. In Amos 9, verse 14, he says, I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they will rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. There will be vineyards, they will drink wine, they will make gardens, they will eat fruit. I will plant them on their land, and they will never again be uprooted. None of that stuff is going to change. Zechariah 8 Seven, thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will save my people from the east country, from the west country. I will bring them to dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. They will be my people. I will be their God in faithfulness and in righteousness. God's going to bring them and, and provide for them the good land. That land flowing with milk and honey, the promise of a restored creation. <laughs> and, the, and what happens is joy. Joy is going to spring forth. Isaiah 51.11 The ransom of the Lord will return to Zion with singing. 
Everlasting joy will be on their heads. Everlasting joy is a long time, right? Yeah, now when we feel joy, we're pretty sure something's going to happen and it's going to go away. But that day, that's not the way it'll be. There'll be no pessimists in heaven. Now, they might have been pessimists before they got there. But after they get there, there'll be no reason for that joy to end. It's everlasting. They shall obtain gladness and joy. Sorrow and sighing flees away. You make known to me the path of life, the psalmist wrote in Psalm 1611. In your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. The thing that makes this so amazing, where people are, where all of the universe is praising, <clears throat> where the redeemed of the Lord are praising, where we're living on a, on a new earth created for those who have uh, followed Jesus. The re- what makes it amazing is He's there. It's not just that it's cool or there's people we love that have died before us that are there. The great thing about it is He's there. Without Him, that wouldn't be heaven. Without Him, that wouldn't be paradise. Without Him, that would be nothing. One of my favorite things to look at and think about after the Exodus, the children of Israel mess up. And God says to them, look, uh, you know what? I'm not going to go with you anymore. But I'll still give you the land. And the people said, if you're not going, we don't want it. That was a high point for them. They weren't perfect. They're messed up. But they understood one thing. If the Lord's not there, it's not good. If the Lord's not there, it's not what I need. I need Him. So whether it's having the Lord and being in the wilderness now for our wanderings until we find ourselves in His presence, the point is being in His presence is what makes it glorious. Amen? Why don't you stand with me? Let's pray. Father God, we thank You for this time, this opportunity that we have to study Your Word, to open Your Word. God, I pray that we can just get a sense of the hope, the hopefulness that is uh, laid out before us, God, the a sense for what you have done and the day that that will be. What a day. What a day that will be when we see you face to face. So God, as we look toward that, as our hope is in that, Lord, I pray you be glorified and magnified. God, bless us as we go from this place and help us each and every step we take to walk the path of wisdom on the way of holiness as we follow you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.